I gotta tell you, a couple of those phrases from that song have been some mantras for me just through my life. Like, throughout the day, I'll just like repeat like, you are good, you're gonna just over and over again. I just, I just love, I love some of those, those worship lines. You know, this morning as we get into the message, um, I want to share just kind of a, a funny reflect realization that I've had for myself, but at least I think it's kind of funny, is um, so if I turn on the TV now to a channel, which doesn't happen very often, um, typically it's like Hulu and Disney Plus, um, but outside of football season, I hardly ever turn on TV to a channel, except when I do, the channel that I turn it to now is PBS, which I laugh at because when I was a kid, I thought PBS was lame, right? Like, they're just like, <laughs> whoever watches PBS, except for Carmen Sandiego or whatever, you know, like, it just seemed like not, <laughs> not fun at all. But now I, I really enjoy it. And, and part of the reason why I do is because I've actually always been a history buff. I've always really loved history and, and, and studying history. Um, and, uh, but it, it didn't really, I didn't realize, I guess, that on PBS, there were all these great shows where they tour all these amazing places. Uh, one of my favorite ones is on pretty, almost uh, each evening was Rick Steves. Anybody watch Rick Steves and he travels Europe? I heard he's a Lutheran too, by the way. So who knows? Maybe he's even worshiping with us today. Hey, Rick, you know, welcome. Um, <laughs> he goes and he tours all these places and it's awesome. Um, it's a way to see the world and it's a lot cheaper. Um, you know, and just turn on PBS and check out these places. One of the things that amazes me when I watch this sh- show and see the places he goes I did not realize that Europe was still so full of all these castles and palaces. You know, like, like I said, I'm, I'm, I'm a history buff. My, my undergraduate degree is in social studies, which is about 80% history. Okay, so I've studied a lot of history, but I never really connected the dots that so many of these places are still there. Like, they're, 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 they're not used the same way. Like, there's not a king that lives in them anymore. They're not the main places for government anymore. But Europe is just, there's all these places around there, and it's just amazing. And when I go through them, I mean, I'm just amazed at how, just how ornate they are and big and beautiful. And, and I guess that's what kings all over Europe did. When you expected, when you, when, you, when you thought of a king, your expectation was of something big and beautiful like that. Now, we don't live in a world where there's so much for kings and stuff today, but I'm sure if I were to say, hey, picture a king or picture a powerful, influential person, there's probably something that would pop up in your mind today. When you think of someone who is, who is big and powerful, maybe you, you think of a, like a big house and a lot of wealth, or maybe there's another image that comes to mind of someone who is, who is powerful and, and influential. Because throughout history, there, there is typically a standard, there's an expectation of what somebody big and powerful looks like, whether it's for us today or whether it's the standard that was common in, in Europe during those times, or whether it's in Jesus' day. But whatever time period people are living in, The scene in our lesson today does not fit our normal expectations of what a powerful, influential person should look like. Our scene today, it seems weak. It seems like a failure. It seems really messed up. And yet, when we study our lesson today, we can begin to see things a whole lot differently by taking a moment and taking a look at Jesus. Today, our lesson, this episode from Mark's Gospel, encourages us to consider your king. The lesson we have is Mark chapter 15, verses 16 to 20. It says, The soldiers led Jesus away into the place, the palace, that is, the praetorium, and called together the whole company of soldiers. They put a purple robe on him, then twisted together a crown of thorns and set it on him. And they began to call out to him, Hail, King of the Jews! 
Again and again, they struck him on the head with a staff and spit on him. Falling on their knees, they paid homage to him. When they had mocked him, they took off the purple robe and put his own clothes on him. Then they led him out to crucify him. Now, our lesson today, it's the next episode in the series that we're doing. We're calling Mark's Miniseries. And the Gospel of Mark, that where we're getting this miniseries from, is really that this gospel that is presenting for us the question, who is Jesus? And it's really laying out for us who he is. He presents all these, these examples, these situations, these times in Jesus' life where Jesus puts on display that he is the promised Messiah. He is the king bringing forward the kingdom of God. But a lot of people don't get it. People continue to misunderstand him. The center of the book, there's this transitional scene where he, he speaks to, to his disciples. He speaks to them and asks them, you know, who do people say that I am? And, and Peter makes his great confession, you're the Christ, you're the promised one. But even there, there's this big misunderstanding because then Jesus proceeds to say, okay, so now this is how I'm going to fulfill this duty. This is how I'm going to live out my vocation. I'm going to go and I'm going to suffer and I'm going to die. And then and that's when Peter is like, no, Lord, never. That can't happen. And then Jesus says, get behind me, Satan. Like, it's this big flip from, okay, that's the right confession to, boom, get behind me, Satan. And then Jesus progresses from there to go towards the cross and to carry out that work that would be so misunderstood. Our lesson today takes place pretty close to when Jesus is, is to the cross. It picks up after what we studied last week where we studied that lesson where, where, where Jesus was falsely accused before Pilate, and then Pilate gave them the opportunity to choose Jesus or Barabbas, and the crowds choose Barabbas instead. Now, this last week, as we were studying this lesson, you know, there's something that, that, that dawned on me, uh, and, and last week I was in the Fort Atkinson location, so I wasn't able to share it with you here in Cottage Grove. I know some of you maybe watched both sermons, so maybe you, you heard some of this if you, if you checked it out. Um, but uh, as I was studying this lesson, something became really clear to me that I hadn't picked up on before, is that while I've always thought this scene was somewhat strange, it actually makes more sense than I originally thought. I always thought that it was weird because I was like, why would you have a tradition where at a feast you release a prisoner? Like, can you imagine, like, every year at Bratfest, like, getting out there and be like, hey, what prisoner do you want us to release to you? Like, this seems very strange. Except for the fact that it talks about how Barabbas was with the insurrectionists. And he had committed murder. Yes, he was a murderer, but he did it in the insurrection. Consider the context that for the Jewish people, Rome had been pushing them down. And for the Jewish people, they knew that there were these promises that God was going to send a king and was going to bless the world through them. And in their minds, Rome was the problem. Rome was pushing them back, holding them down, pressing them down. And so commonly again and again in the years leading up to Jesus' life, the Jews would fight against the Romans. And there was this big effort to try to overthrow them and to defeat them. And so, if the prisoner you're releasing is one of these insurrectionists, for many of the people, they seem like the good guys. You know, like the guy who's fighting your effort. He's like a freedom fighter. He's trying to throw off Rome. It also, they, it, it makes sense that they would then want one of these people. And it also makes sense that, that the religious leaders brought Jesus before Pilate because Pilate's job was to make sure taxes were collected and make sure the Jewish people stayed underneath the th thumb of Rome. And that's why they accused Jesus of being a threat to Rome. 
And that's also why it makes sense that Jesus would be offered up alongside of Barabbas. Because they were accusing Jesus of being an insurrectionist. Which, again, might seem weird. I mean, Jesus didn't do that at all, right? But if you look at the ministry of Jesus, while Jesus was not an insurrectionist, was not a rebel against Rome, they wanted him to be. Go back to, the, to when Jesus fed the 5,000. And the 5,000 plus. And we're told that Jesus um, went and he withdrew to a mountain. The reason is they intended to come and make him a king by force. What, what does that mean? They wanted him to lead a rebellion against Rome. That's what that's all about. They wanted him to be a political leader against Rome. And even the religious leaders were convinced that ultimately Jesus would lead some sort of political rebellion. There's this interesting conversation that takes place after Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead. And when it takes place, I always thought it was weird, like, okay, Jesus raises someone from the dead, and they have this, this conversation where we're like, man, we got to kill this guy because if he keeps raising people from the dead, everybody's going to believe in him. And I always thought, like, maybe you should just believe in him, you know? If the guy can raise people from the dead, you should probably listen to him. But their concern was that if he gets a big enough following and then he starts a big enough uprising, then Rome is going to have to come in with a really heavy hand and really destroy the Jewish people. They were concerned that, that Rome would come in and just squash him. Which, in some ways, there might have been actually some good uh, intentions there. They didn't want people to suffer, but also realized that these religious leaders, many of them really were happy with the world as it was. Many of them were, were, were wealthy, they were, they were respected, they were comfortable, and the last thing wa they wanted was somebody to, to unsettle the situation. Can we just keep the peace and just keep it fine? It was kind of what, what, what many of them thought. Interestingly enough, when, when, when the, the Gospels talk about religious leaders who were interested in Jesus, the phrase says that they were looking for the kingdom of God, which maybe gives us insight that many of the religious leaders were no longer looking for the kingdom of God. They just wanted it to stay as it was. And they were concerned Jesus would lead a political insurrectionist rebellion against Rome and ultimately break things apart. And you even see this reflected in the way that Jesus is arrested. They come with them with all these clubs and these torches and things. And what does Jesus say? Am I leading a rebellion that you have come out with swords and clubs to capture me? People were convinced that this was the sort of leader Jesus could be and would eventually be. Which is why he's put up alongside Barabbas and also part of why he looks like such a failure to the people. Because they wanted him to overthrow the Romans and here he is under the thumb of Pilate. Looking like an utter failure. It helps us understand that, that, that setting for our lesson today, but also can help us make sense of our lesson that we get into today, where we see that the soldiers led Jesus away into the palace, that is the praetorium, and, and called together the whole company of, of, of soldiers. So they, they take Jesus to, to this place, which is really the Roman headquarters. That's what that praetorium is referring to. Is typically, these Roman leaders like Pilate would, would get a palace or something in the area that they, that they occupy, make it their headquarters. And here, that's where, where all the soldiers would be based out of and so on. They come together here to make fun of Jesus because, again, he looks like someone who was trying to lead a rebellion and failed. And so they're going to get together and have some fun, which, you know, as we look at it, it might seem super cruel, but we need to realize that 
crucifixion was actually really common in Rome. Um, the, the, their, 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 their method for how do you keep a nation underneath your thumb is whenever somebody rebels against you, hang them on a cross alongside the road. That'll stop people from rebelling. It was like a big billboard saying, don't mess with Rome. All over, this is what they did. And so these people, this is really cruel, but they're calloused. They do this all the time. And they're bored. And so here you have a special opportunity, this guy who was supposedly supposed to be this great leader and this great king and everything. So here they get together and they, they, they go and it's time to make, it's time to have some fun and let's make fun of them. They twist together, they put a purple robe on him, purple will be the color of kings. Um, they twist up a crown of thorns, they put it on his head to be a crown there. They, they, they call out to him, hail king of the Jews. And again, again, they strike him on the head with a staff, they spit on him, they fall on their knees, they pay homage to him, they, 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 they just make fun of Jesus because what they see is a failure. Their expectation of what a king should look like was based on something like, what, what does Caesar look like? That's what a king should look like. A powerful king, he should look like the leader of one of these, 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 these nations. This is what a powerful king should look like. And who they had in front of them looked like a complete and utter failure based on their expectations of what a king should do and what he should look like. As we think about this lesson, as we think about the, the, these, these soldiers who had this wrong expectation of what, a, what a, a king should look like, and as we think about the people in this lesson who had a wrong expectation of what a king should look like, it's an opportunity for us not to just point fingers at them, but to take a step back and to consider, do our expectations of the king ever get distorted? You know what I mean? Because we still have that simple nature in us, too. Like, do we ever get an off expectation of what a real king should look like, of what King Jesus should look like, and what it should look like when he is working in this world? Do we ever get our expectations off, too? One of the ways that it can happen, one of the ways that it can slip in, is actually very similar to the way it slipped in for the people of Israel in Jesus' life and in his ministry. You and I, we live in a, in, a, in a wonderful country that we are so thankful for, the United States of America. And we, in this country, we enjoy a lot of wonderful freedoms. We sing songs like God Bless America and talk about one nation under God. And this is wonderful. This is beautiful. And God has done a lot of wonderful things in our nation. But do we ever begin to develop the expectation that the king looks like our nation. You know what I mean? Like, like if, if the king is going to be at work, if King Jesus is going to work in this world, the ones he's going to have to do it through are us, is this, is this country, is this nation. Like the nation is, is central to the kingdom of God going forward. Do we ever begin to get that expectation? Or like that expectation that the kingdom of God looks like a certain politician or a certain leader or a certain party or a certain agenda going forward or a certain a certain law being passed, do we ever develop the expectation that if God's moving in our nation and in our world, it's through certain people, certain parties, certain laws? Do we get that expectation sometimes? That that's the primary way God works? And if so, consider your king. The people were convinced that he could be a great political leader. The, the, the religious leaders were convinced this is what he was coming to be. And Jesus again and again refused. That is not who he was. 
Jesus was not there to fit into the Sadducee party, the Pharisee party. He wasn't there even to lead the political nation of Israel against Rome. That's not what the king was there to do. The kingdom of God, Jesus showed, was actually bigger than the political nation of Israel. It was something bigger and more important. The kingdom of God doesn't look like other kings, kingdoms. And when the king is at work, it doesn't look like the work that takes place in other kingdoms. God can use kingdoms. And we most certainly should care about what goes on in kingdoms and in our nations. We should, we should be, be aware of things going on. We should pray about the things going on. There's been a lot of concerning stuff going on in our nation, and we should pray about it and be active in so on. But we need to have a clear distinction that the king, while he can work through nations and often does, the kingdom of God is bigger than any one nation or person. The kingdom of God is different. The kingdom of God is about something bigger than a nation because the kingdom of God isn't about a structured nation. It's about the hearts of individuals. It's about God being the king over everybody's heart. Jesus lived in a time where actually the, the nation was very focused on the laws of God, the rules of God. The religious leaders followed so many laws trying to follow the Old Testament scriptures. And yet, when their king was in front of them, they didn't have a clue. The kingdom of God works differently than through leaders. Consider your king. All right, so that's a big, more national, big picture way. But let's check our expectations in our own lives. What do we expect it to look like when the king is working in our lives? I saw there's a, a post the other day that someone shared, um, and uh, and I'm not, on, I'm not on social media very much. If I ever comment or like anything on Facebook, it's because you popped up in the top of my news feed. So feel, feel um, honored because I got off of it last summer because I found it just wasn't healthy for me. Um, and uh, anyways, I saw this post, and it was, it, was, it was a good post. These are the kind of posts that should be on Facebook more. And yet there was a little, little uncomfortable thing to it. The, the, the post said, God has really been blessing me a lot lately. And then went through and mentioned all these various ways that God had blessed them. And that's wonderful. That's great that people are giving praise to God for the ways that he's blessing them, that, that you can see clear ways. But should we always expect that God is going to work in our lives through really clear blessings? You know, like he was blessing this person lately. Does that mean that he wasn't blessing this person before? You know? I mean, consider your king. Consider the fact that, that Jesus had done incredible things where he had healed people and he had fed thousands and, and, and calmed storms and all this stuff. And yet right now he is on the path to his greatest work. And it doesn't look like a blessing at the moment at all. It looks like utter failure. Consider your king. What should we expect when we see him working in our, in our lives? Or how about the expectations of, of, of what it should look like when God is working through us? You know, I, I'm hopeful that in your Christian walk, you have seen God's hand work through you in, 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 in special ways. I'm confident he, that he has been and that you have seen special ways. We all have spiritual gifts, and God is working through us. I'm hopeful that you've seen that maybe you've shared your faith with somebody, and it's been amazing, or you, you, you've mentored someone, and it's been amazing, or you've served somebody, and it's made a real clear impact. And we should praise God for that. But should we always expect that when the king is working through us, we're going to see clear, impactful results? Or 
does sometimes it look different? Consider your king. Consider the fact that Jesus had followings of thousands. And yet when we get to our lesson, they had turned against him and his closest followers had deserted him. Doesn't mean that he stopped being the king and stopped making an impact. No, he was in the process of doing the greatest work. God's plan was being fulfilled. Even though everybody had turned against him, consider your king. And this, what, what about our expectations when we think about how God works in us? Um, perhaps this is the most important one. I'm hopeful that in your, your, your Christian walk, you have had incredible light bulbs when it comes to your faith. Like, where you just you understand God better in some ways, and you're like, man, I get this, and it, and it, res- and, and it resonates, and it changes me. And, and, and I'm hopeful that you can look at your Christian walk, and you can say, look, this is something I used to struggle with, and I don't anymore. I have grown in this way. And praise God for that. Celebrate that. But should we always expect that when God's work in our lives is going to look like me understanding him better or me feeling like I'm really doing better in my life of sanctification, my life of being set apart. Consider your king. His disciples were so confused by what he was doing, didn't get it at all. And more importantly, consider the fact that he was going to the cross to die for who? For us, because... We sin. He didn't come for people who were going to be able to just turn their lives around and just be living good all the time. He came for people who were stuck in sin and still struggle. Consider your king as we check our expectations. Now, in our lesson, it's interesting that Jesus didn't match your expectations, and so they make fun of him, and, and they mock him. But what's, what's ironic, and, and maybe ironic isn't the right word. Like it's, it, I don't know if it really captures it. Maybe it's more, maybe profound is the better word. Is that what they say and what they do while they're making fun of him is actually spot on. <laughs> you know, like they put a purple robe on him because purple is the royal color. He deserved a purple robe. You know? They put a crown on him. He deserved a crown because he was the king. They said, Hail the king of the Jews. They were exactly right with what they said. And when they paid homage to him, and they said that that word means to revere, to worship, he was the one who really deserved all of our worship. Yeah, it, it, isn't it strange, isn't it? Ironic, profound, that they said all the right things and did all the right things. But they did it all in fun. They were making fun of Jesus. And it says that they had mocked him. That's what that word really means, is, is, is to play with Jesus. But you know what? While they were playing, while they were goofing around, Jesus was being the king. And they might have been goofing around, but Jesus was doing the greatest work. He was being the greatest king that this world has ever known and exerting the most incredible power that we have ever seen. He was advancing the kingdom. There's this 
beautiful poem. It's in the book of Isaiah. The city of Jerusalem has just been destroyed by Babylon, a great kingdom in the north. And all of these Jewish people, they've been sent away into exile, but a few remained in the city. And they're left wondering, what just happened? Has our God abandoned us? Right, because Jerusalem was supposed to be the city where God would reign over the world to bring peace and blessing to everyone. Now Isaiah had been saying that Jerusalem's destruction was a mess of Israel's own making. They had turned away from their God, become corrupt, and so their city and their temple were destroyed. Yeah, everything seems lost. But the poem goes on. There's a watchman on the city walls. And far out on the hills, we see a messenger. And he's running towards the city. He's running and he's shouting, good news. And Isaiah says, how beautiful on the mountains are the feet of those who bring good news. Beautiful feet? Yes. The feet are beautiful because they're carrying a beautiful message. What's the message? That despite Jerusalem's destruction, Israel's God still reigns as king, and that God himself is going to one day return to this city, take up his throne, and bring peace. And the watchmen sing for joy because of the good news that their God still reigns. Now in the New Testament, we find this same phrase, the good news. It's the Greek word euangelion, and it's also sometimes translated with the word gospel. Yeah, so when Christians say, do you believe the gospel, they mean, do you believe the news? But not just any news. In the Bible, this phrase is always about the announcement of the reign of a new king. And in the New Testament, the Gospels use this phrase to summarize all of Jesus' teachings. They say that he went about proclaiming the good news of God's kingdom. So Jesus saw himself as the messenger, bringing the news that God reigns. Yes, but the way that he described God's reign, it surprised everybody. I mean, think, a powerful, successful kingdom that needs to be strong, able to impose its will, able to defeat its enemies. But Jesus said the greatest person in God's kingdom was the weakest, the one who loves and who serves the poor. And he said that you live under God's reign when you respond to evil by loving your enemies and forgiving them and seeking peace. This is an upside-down kingdom. Now, Jesus also said that this kingdom was arriving with him. Yeah, so for example, there's this really interesting story where there's a high-ranking Roman officer, and he comes to Jesus begging him to heal his servant. And he even calls Jesus his Lord, acknowledging that Jesus is his authority. Jesus praises this man for recognizing what no one else yet had, that not only was Jesus announcing God's kingdom, he was the king. And so the word gets out that this Jewish man from Galilee is talking and acting like he's the king of Israel. He's appointing 12 disciples, which are an image of Israel's 12 tribes. He's healing people, forgiving people their sins. And all of this so threatened Israel's leaders that they finally decide to have him killed. And Jesus let them. Yeah, which is a weird thing to do if you're trying to become king. That's right, but for Jesus, this is what had to happen. Jesus saw the sin and the devastation of his people Israel as just one small part of the entire human condition. How all humanity has rebelled against God, resulting in the tragedy and devastation of our whole world. So how is God going to bring his reign over such a world? Jesus believed it would be through an act of sacrificial love for his enemies.
This is why in the Gospels, Jesus' crucifixion is depicted as his enthronement as the king of the Jews. Yeah, he receives a crown. He also receives a robe. He's exalted up, not onto a throne, but onto the cross. How beautiful are the feet that bring good news. And the good news now is that Jesus has defeated death and that he reigns as king, that he's dealt with our sin and corruption himself and that he's conquered it with his life and with his love. And then Jesus sends his followers to go out and keep announcing this good news of the upside down kingdom. And to invite everyone to give their allegiance to him, the king who defeated death with his love. Consider your king, who is so powerful, he doesn't need to use what we normally think of as power. He's so great that he doesn't have to look great. As a matter of fact, when he he looks weak and when he looks like he's he's failing, that he's accomplishing the greatest work. I mean, here, these these soldiers, they looked at Jesus and they they saw someone who they could make fun of. They put a crown on him because he looked like a failed king. They put this robe on him that they said, Hail, King of the Jews, because he looked like a failure. But who was in front of them was actually the greatest king that this world has ever known. He is the king over the world. And what they were witnessing was the most powerful thing imaginable. What were they witnessing? They were witnessing self-giving, sacrificial love in action. They were witnessing the God who loves us so much that he looked at us and he said, I don't want to leave you to go off your own way. You guys go and you, and you do things that are destructive and cause pain and hurt, and I don't want you to be stuck there. You, you, you turn away from me, and so we're separated because of sin, and I don't want you to be that way. And so God said, I'm going to love you so much that I'm going to give myself. I'm going to become one of you. And then I'm going to allow myself to be arrested, to be falsely accused, to be mocked, shortly to be led away and to be killed. What they were witnessing was sacrificial love and action. The only thing powerful enough to defeat our sin. When that sacrificial love was put in action, when God went to the cross, Jesus was able to put himself in our place. And so to take all the pain that comes from the wrong things that we've done, all the justice that those wrong things deserve could be placed on him. And if all that justice, all that guilt, all that shame, all that pain is placed there, if he died the death that you and I deserve, then he could also defeat the greatest enemy that fights against us always. Our sin the evil, and the death that comes as a result. Jesus took all of it. And with that act of self-sacrificial love, defeated it. He conquered it. It looked like it was defeating him. It looked like he was losing. It looked like his life was heading to a literal dead end. In a way, it was. But what Jesus did was turn a dead end into a doorway. It turned it totally upside down. Right here, we see the greatest king and the most powerful thing. And when we take a look at this king, when we consider this king, when this king gets into our hearts, man, it, it changes the way everything looks. We can begin to see everything differently. We can begin to see why Jesus says what he does with the uh, Beatitudes. It all seems upside down. Blessed when you're poor in spirit. Blessed when you mourn. You know what? 
this God, this king works through weakness and through challenges and he wants us to hunger for something more than this world. It might seem to be weak and a failure, but God is working and it's good. When we begin to have this sink into our hearts, it's amazing how we can begin to see things different and how strange we can begin to act in a good way. In our background lesson, we read that account from Acts chapter 5. And, and I love this lesson. Not, not the first part of it. I don't love the fact that people were flogged because they spoke the name of Jesus. I really don't want anybody to beat me up after church today. Um, especially you, Cam. I know you could take me down. I don't want any, but I don't want any beatings after church today. But what I do love is it's so strange. They were pumped up because they were called, they were deserved worthy of being, being beaten, of suffering. It just, it's just upside down. It just changes things. When you consider your king, you could see things different. So let's do that. Let's see things different. Look at the world. Look at, look, at the, look at our nation and see things different. If we see God's hand clearly and we see good things moving forward and things happen the way that we, we think they should, praise them. But when they don't, still praise them. You know, there, there are things that I, that I hear people talk about in, in, our, in our nation, in our world, and, and, and I hear a lot of discouragement. And sometimes even sounds like defeat. Like, oh, the world's just getting worse, and this is getting bad, and this is, this is over here. And, and you know what? That's, we shouldn't mourn the things that are happening in our world, the things that, that are still happening, the things that are happening in new ways or whatever. We shouldn't mourn these things. We should grieve those things. But you know, grief is never meant to be the stopping point. Grief is part of a process towards healing, right? Grieve things that are happening in the world, but don't stay there. Remember the fact that Jesus looked like he was going to fail. It looked like his life was going the wrong direction, and yet he was going precisely to this point, to the spot where he would defeat the enemy. The enemy's defeated. Look around, like, look at the world. Like, the, the, the enemy is defeated. It doesn't matter what's going on in the world. The enemy is defeated and the kingdom is advancing. That's why Jesus, when he talked about what to expect from the world, there'll be earthquakes, famines, this, this, and that. And then the gospel of the kingdom will reach the ends of the earth. Everything can look like it's falling apart. The gospel of the kingdom is advancing. The kingdom is advancing. Celebrate that. Be a part of that. Live in victory, not defeat. Consider your king. See your life differently. If God shows up in really clear, visible ways, man, look at these blessings, praise him. But when it's hard to see God's hand, consider your king. Consider the fact that he looked like everything was lost. It was a mess. And yet he was still following God's plan. God's purpose would prevail. Wherever you're at, God's purpose is prevailing. Consider your king. When, when, you, when you think about how God is working through you and, and the potential impact how he can make on people around you, if God is, is, is using you right now in really clear ways, praise him, celebrate him. But consider your king. There may be points where you don't see it. Maybe people are actually not listening to you. Maybe it doesn't seem to be resonating or working at the moment. But Jesus, consider him, was being mocked. And yet, here we are, 2,000 plus years later, gathered in person and online to celebrate him. Consider your king. See your, yourself and what God's doing you differently. When you have those big light bulbs and you get God and, and, and you can see, man, look, at this is where I was and God has brought me here, celebrate that. 
But when there are points that you don't get God, when there are, are, are points when you are confused, and when there are points that you realize that you are so sinful, consider your king. Those are really hard points, by the way. I got to say, one of the hardest things for me is like, I find like I'll learn this new thing. I'm like pumped up about God. And then sometimes it seems like the next thing that I learn opens up a whole new room of things that I don't know. Right now in my Bible app, you know, I can comment on like, and you can add notes. You know what most of my notes are? Questions. Like, huh, never thought about this. I wonder about that. And I just note the question so that I can come back to it later. You know, but often there's just more questions. And that can be hard. And the more I learn about myself, the more I realize how sinful I am and how much I struggle with pride here or this here or that there or whatever. Whenever we get into those frustrating times, consider your king. Man, sometimes what he does doesn't seem to make sense to us, but he's still doing God's will. And most importantly, consider what he really ultimately came to do, what God's will is. He came to die for sinners. He came to make it so that whatever we struggle with, that's not our identity anymore. He came to make it so that whatever guilt was on us because of that thing that we did, it's all removed. Your shame is gone. There is not a thing that separates you from God. See yourself, see your life, see the people around you, see the world differently. Consider your king.